but we're always searching for this God that's outside of those things. And I think that's the bit that's frustrated me the most is when I've been in countries of conflict or in my own life or whatever it might be, I've seen that the biggest need is to create space for the sacred, for God, right in the middle of that chaos. Hello and welcome to the Together podcast, a conversation about faith, justice and how to change the world. I'm Dan and today I'm joined by Chris. How you doing, Chris? Not too bad, thanks. The sun is shining. It feels like spring. The roadmap is on its way. (laughs) I love that each one of these intros is a a catch up on the roadmap situation. (laughs) Honestly, it's all all I care about at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So from today... We can meet six people outside. It's there you the go. 29th of March. Still, still no pubs and shops and that, but we can sit in a park or in someone's garden. Yeah, My I'm garden's pre- pretty trash at the moment, though. <laughs> You're like, the this timing's... changes nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the timing is, is pretty bad. I, have, I haven't really thought it through, but... Um, yeah, we've had a bit of building work, and it's you know I'm not I'm not inviting anyone into into my garden on the uh, from today. But well, it just means yeah. you get to go out. You get to be the 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 sixth person to join that five person group outside, yeah. socially distant, nice. in the park nice. or in someone's garden. Do you have to just go straight myself. to exactly? Do you have to go straight to someone's garden? I feel like the rule legally, you're not supposed to like go into someone's house. I think so. It's definitely a thing that if you're in someone's garden and you need the toilet, you're allowed to go in to use the toilet. Oh, lovely. I saw I was, that the other I was day. just going to turn around, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like, I don't think they mentioned that with the equivalent rule last summer. So maybe a, a couple of people were, were caught short. And yeah. <laughs> so this time around, they've been like, guys, just use the toilet. And, you know. um, which makes me think you probably can, if there's no access around the back, walk through the house. Cool. So I'm on it. It's going to be, I, I don't know if it, it was similar for you, but um, last, was it July time, August time when you could have someone in your house socially yeah, distanced? Yeah. It was just suddenly very weird, wasn't it? Like having it people was. in the house again. So, it was very man. strange. And it was really hot, um, I remember at that point. It was like the last time, the, the, like the least moment in time where you'd ever want to be inside. It was so hot. <laughs> Yeah, it does make this a bit different, doesn't it? It's like you can hang out with six people outside. You're like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> it's a bit cold. So um, if you're listening in, you might have noticed that Emma isn't here today. Uh, Chris and I are going to try and be um, making up for that and covering for Emma. And she'll be joining us back in the next episode. But in today's episode, we'll be hearing from peacebuilding expert Mariam Tadros. She shared some of her experience working in conflict zones and how to bring unity even amongst enemies. But before we hear from Mariam, it's time for Emma's Dilemmas. Well, obviously, as you said, Dan, Emma's not here today. So I think uh, we might rebrand this little section, Chris's mm. Chris's quandaries, maybe. <laughs> I like quandaries nice. as a word. It's very. It immediately goes highbrow, doesn't it, into <laughs> exactly. kind of like IQ uh, level of, <laughs> of panel discussions. Exactly, but let's bring it back yeah. down with the actual question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, it's a, it's a pretty decent question. Today's question is: Would you rather always get stuck in traffic, or always have terribly slow internet 
So it's <laughs> always get stuck in traffic. And that's not like, there's no time on that. There's no, um, there's no understanding for you of how long you're going to be in traffic. It doesn't matter what mode of transport you take, you're going to be stuck for a bit. Um, or you'll just always have a terribly slow internet connection. I think that's probably the toughest dilemma I we've so had too. because those are two two terrible like outcomes <laughs> you know at least with the others you know you could one of them was becoming a monk for a year you know you, you can think oh I, I quite like to become a monk yeah. for a year or being followed by paparazzi or whatever it is whereas this like I you know traffic infuriates me and, and slow internet <laughs> infuriates me I think I'd have to go traffic. So when you say no matter what means, what if I was walking somewhere? Can we just clarify that? Just like swarms of traffic. You might as <laughs> be stuck behind someone walking really slow, can't get around them. <laughs> oh man, that is tough. I'm going to have to go internet though, because imagine, you know, everything that we do in our life, like this conversation now, work, yeah. you know, streaming, uh, social media, the lot. Yeah. And exactly. and that just shows our dependence on the internet, right? Yeah, I'm with you to be honest. Like I I thought about this question long and hard, and I just think, nah, I'm not here for a life of slow internet. Which sounds a bit ridiculous, but it's true. I just can't. I don't think I want to face that. And I I would hope that I could explain to people that I have this like invisible curse put on me where I'm always stuck in traffic. So sorry if I'm late ahead of time, but I can WhatsApp <laughs> you that because I've got an internet connection. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I also think it's, you know, um, you know, when you have a power cut and then you're wandering around your house trying to find something to do and you go, oh, yeah, I could do that. And you sit down and you do it and then you realise it requires power and you just completely yeah. forgot. <laughs> like even going to like, oh, I'll, I'll just make a cup of tea and then like, oh, no, the kettle requires power and stuff. Exactly. I think that's what our our life would be with, with slow internet is we'd forget that every source of entertainment, as sad as it is, yeah. you know, pre- pretty much bases itself around internet so exactly. yeah i'm gonna go i'd rather have i'd rather be stuck in track every time than slow traffic me too and as someone i knew a while ago who had like was an annoyingly optimistic person i remember once being stuck in traffic with them and i was complaining and they went no it's just more time for us to chat which drove me crazy in the moment, but is <laughs> the type of optimism I would need to have going forward. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to prepare like really long podcast episodes, or, like, you'd listen to a whole audio book or like something just to pass the time. Exactly. Great. Thank you, Chris, for this week's quandary. If you're listening at home and want to submit your own, head to wearetfund on Instagram and leave us a message. Next up, it's What in the World? Welcome to What in the World, where we discuss the latest in news and current affairs. Chris, what are we talking about today? So, the UK government has recently attempted, and still attempting, to pass a new police crime sentencing and courts bill that would essentially give lawmakers and law enforcement a lot more power. One of the main areas of implication would be protests. So much so that some people are actually calling it the anti-protest bill. So some of the main areas of concern at the moment include vague restrictions against even one person by themselves causing, quote, serious annoyance or serious inconvenience, as well as giving the Home Secretary power to create laws without parliamentary approval. In so many words, people are afraid that this is leading down a slippery slope of highly restrictive social policing. 
And of course, this comes after growing climate protests, after a year of particularly heightened protests against police brutality, and more recently, the awful police response at Sarah Everett's vigil. The reaction to the proposed bill has been controversial so far, leading to the Kill the Bill protest, which took place in Bristol on Sunday, the 21st of March. This unfortunately became violent and a lot of public and private property was damaged in the process. So... Is the bill really needed or is it as dangerous as people are worried about? Dan, what are your thoughts? So I think the first thought is that we need to have the freedom and right to protest because that's fundamental to democracy, isn't it? It's the ability to um, express views, opinions, uh, to stand up for the rights of others um, and for that to be a demonstration that's seen by people in in power who can make the decisions that's that's the core mm. thing here and so we've got to be careful that any decisions that are made now don't remove that right i think the yeah. key thing here is obviously we're talking about peaceful protests and um, non-peaceful protests are going to be dealt with in the same way they were previously i'm sure in that and, and and rightly so in you know more of a criminal act but I think a lot of the argument comes comes down to the disruptiveness of the protests, doesn't it? And some of this yeah. comes back to the Extinction Rebellion um, protests mm. where you had... The goal was to create disruption on yeah. uh, um, London transport and in other cities around the UK. People were blocking bridge bridges, getting on trains, etc. And that takes yeah. up police resource. And so that's, that's you know, some, something that needs to be thought about because it's impacting infrastructure and impacting the policing, but there can't be anything that restricts our right um, to protest, whether we agree it or not. And so the climate protests last year, we would say this because we would agree with it, but we also have to, um, when we see protests uh, for things we don't believe in and don't agree with, so, you know, whether that's the anti-lockdown protests we saw or even protests to this bill, um, you know, whether you agree that that should happen or not, um, we still need to defend the right of people to have those protests in a peaceful way. And yeah. some some of the the ways in which the bill might restrict that in terms of setting noise limits, but also potentially imposing start and finish times can lead down a slippery slope. Because are we going to see like, yeah. you can do that protest, but it's got to start at 9am and finish by 10am. 10, 10 it's like, well, that's, <laughs> yeah, not, exactly. that's not the point. There's a, there's a part of a protest that needs to be a disruption and needs to be yeah. a, a visual um, coming together of people who who uh, are working towards a common goal. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I've always kind of had this, this back and forth in my head about protests because I know even like, now, I know even before this bill, like if you wanted to do a protest, you would have to... I don't know the exact process, but you'd pass it through like law enforcement and stuff and they'd be they'd be made aware of everything that all your plans and what you're trying to do, etc. And like part of me is like, it's really strange to be like, hey, we've got this we've got this issue that we want to make noise about. And so we're gonna ask you if we're allowed to make noise about it. And hopefully you say yes, and then we'll do what we wanna do, but then you don't want it to be too disruptive. It's like what well, we it's just a weird like back and forth of like a protest, I guess, is in my mind, is supposed to inherently be about mm. speaking truth to power, about actually calling out things that are wrong and exposing them uh, in in the light, in a public way, so that other people can join that. Um, so yeah, there's a big part of me that's like, I don't know, protests. I feel like they need to have that that level of freedom to be able to do that. I understand, of course, like like you said, violent protests and when things turn sour 
obviously a lot of things that we want to like push forward or that we want to say uh, are great for us to do. But in the same breath, like, you know, I think about Jesus in the temple and he sat down and made a whip and like he started clearing that temple out. And I'm sure like by today's standards, he would have probably been arrested. And they would have said, oh, you know, he's been he's been awful, he's been disruptive, terrible, da, da, da. And for me, it's kind of like, well, is that, are we trying to, like, follow in Jesus' footsteps or are we trying to kind of, like, just get along in life and just not make too much noise, not upset too many people for the sake of just not upsetting them? Mm. Seems strange to me. Yeah, definitely. What do you think people can do, we can do, those listening to this can do? Because it's it's an odd one, you see the um, protests in Bristol uh, last week now um, and how that turned violent and, if anything, reinforced the argument for changes or or introduction of this bill. Now, obviously, you know, that became a violent protest and there is a way to protest against it peacefully. But um, it, it kind of seems difficult at this stage to say, well, how, you know, protesting against a bill that's saying that we shouldn't protest there's yeah. going to be a lot of tension over overflowing from that. Yeah, I think, like, firstly, you know, it's great listening to us, but I'm, I'm sure Dan will say as well, we are not the most clued up people in the world. So, um, like, go research what this is actually about. You can you can literally go onto the onto the, uh, www.gov.uk and literally read the bill for yourself. Um, so I would do that, understand what, what, are, what are people's concerns for yourself. And then, yeah, I think start to think about actually can I contact my own MP and say you know what this is not something that I support as someone in your constituency I'd really love for you to take this up as a as a as a concern uh, not just for myself as a person but also like you said Dan for for a society living in a democracy where we want to be able to look out for people who are being marginalized in different ways this is something that's core to me as a person and I think should be core to us as a society so I think going on down that route researching contacting your MP um, and yeah just staying clued up with what's happening of course if you end up at a, at a protest you know keep it peaceful uh, follow follow the guidelines um, but it's interesting like I haven't been to a few protests myself I know how sometimes these things can get twisted and spun into different shapes where actually I've been at protests where it's completely peaceful like I saw nothing but like everyone doing what they were supposed to do and then literally a few hours later on the news it's like this happened and this happened and this happened so yeah i think be be smart be safe if you are going to protest and keep it peaceful yeah definitely it's certainly a lot to think about and an important issue for us to to talk over but we'd actually love to hear your thoughts uh, by leaving us a voice message so this is something new that we're able to do you can drop us a voice note uh, we can listen to it we can play it on the podcast and discuss it so we'd love to hear your thoughts on the introduction of the police and protest bill you know what do you think that uh, will mean for protesting and what do you think we can do as uh, you know people passionate about seeing change and one way of doing that is through protest so to leave a voice message head to weare.tearfund.org forward slash podcast that's weare.tearfund.org forward slash podcast leave a voice message we'll be able to hear it uh, we'll we'll play it on a future episode and uh, we'd love to know your thoughts but now it's time to hear from chris's conversation with mariam So I'm Mariam Tadros. I co-lead Tear Fund's Fragile States and Peacebuilding work, which essentially means 
uh, we oversee um, and support uh, in most of our peacebuilding work globally, as well as uh, work that might address root causes of conflict uh, across our different countries. Awesome. That's quite like a, a, a heavy goal. Well, not <laughs> heavy, but it's a big goal. Yeah. And what kind of even drew you down this route in the first place? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been quite a journey for me, I guess, over the last 10 years or so. So I started off, uh, I guess there's kind of two parts to my story, really. One which is a personal part and one which is sort of through studies and work and that sort of thing. And I guess the... Yeah. Work side of things was uh, I studied theology at university, uh, which was in itself kind of a bit of a uh, a black sheep moment for me. Uh, I grew <laughs> up in a in a culture and a family where I was supposed to become a doctor or a dentist, and yeah. when I told them I was going to do theology, they thought that I was going to become an atheist. So um, that was kind of a first big moment for me. Uh, of, That's like really ironic as well. Like. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like you grow up in a like really religious kind of spiritual family, and then as soon as you say you want to go deeper in that, it's like nah. <laughs> so it was, um, yeah. Um, so that was that was the first step for me. Really, was sort of entering into that world of getting to understand both humanity and God at a totally different uh, level and in a totally different space. And it began to open up really big questions for me. Um, so when I finished my degree, I went on to study a bit further and focused in on uh, what's known as kind of liberation theology, which is really about social justice. And it's looking at the gospel through the lens of social justice. Mm. And in my earlier days, I focused in on uh, kind of Israel and Palestine and what it means to look at the gospel uh, through the lens of uh, occupation and through the lens of injustice and I then spent uh, six months out in Palestine uh, as an intern, learning about non-violent protest, learning about restorative justice, and it really opened up a world for me that was totally different, uh, that really questioned the kind of black and white nature that often we grow up with of what the mm. gospel is and what the message of Jesus is. And it also really opened my eyes to the complexity of humanity um, and the consequences, I guess, of conflict and especially long conflicts that take years mm. and years. So that was kind of a real like baptism of fire for me in many ways into this world of conflict and peace building. And on a personal level, in my early 20s, while I was at uni, I uh, went through a, a year where we just had, we had multiple deaths around us uh, where... Mm friends lost parents um, one of my friend's mums was murdered and we had to learn all of a sudden in our early 20s how to face the realities of of life um, and we all grew mm. up probably like 20 years um very very quickly and i guess the space of grief for me has always been a teacher in terms of i guess again that complexity of humanity where it's just mm. not, it doesn't, we don't go in an upward trajectory in life. <laughs> like it goes round yeah. and round in circles, right? Depending on circumstance. Yeah. And that really humbled me and I think taught me to keep my feet on the ground and taught me that uh, life is not guaranteed to be easy and mm. happy uh, even. And so we've got to really lean into the circumstances around us and search for that thing deep within that keeps yeah. our feet on the ground. Um, so yeah, I think both of those things sort of happening parallel to each other launched me into this work. Um, 
And then life kind of took a different trajectory. I ended up working at Tier Fund, more on like the humanitarian side and focusing on, I started off working, uh, supporting our Haiti team and then spent many years in the Western Central Africa team. And that kind of gave me a real global perspective on like poverty, on justice, on uh, just basic human needs needing to be met. Mm. And so it brought that more kind of urgent lens for me. But I've always had this kind of underlying thing of um, what does it take to transform conflict? And um, it was really uh, around 2014-15 when I spent a year uh, with Tier Fund setting up our program in Iraq um, mm. after ISIS had taken over swathes of, of the land um, that I managed to bring those two things together, I think, or began to anyway, where seeing that urgent need in the middle of a context that was so complex but has such mm. long history of both um, the development of civilization but also uh, conflict and tension mm. and death and grief and trauma all mixed mm. into one and kind of going through that cycle again uh, that it was so used to. Um, yeah. Being right in the middle of that but also like doing the humanitarian work of meet, meeting immediate needs whilst trying to immerse myself in in the culture and and making friends with local people with the local staff etc and just really learning about human resilience more than anything it's really interesting i want to get a bit more into your experience particularly particularly in the different countries that you've been working mm. in but um what you were saying kind of really rings true to what gareth from ren collective was saying i had an interview with him at the start of the year mm. and he was talking about this kind of idea of yeah growing up in a church environment and a religious environment um, and then get into like your 20s and kind of being like oh the world is yeah. like really real and it's, it's really up. complicated yeah. and messy and difficult yeah. what do you think is happening that I guess like you've had that experience Gav's had that experience I could say for myself I've had mm. that experience mm. is the church just not preparing us as young people for like the real world that we that we will inevitably connect with yeah, I think it's a great Great question. Um, I think it was interesting for me because I grew up so involved in the church, especially through my teens. Um, and I grew up like full in the youth service, completely dedicated uh, to it. And like you said, like I hit my 20s and the realities outside of church and around me began to hit me. And I felt like the security bubble that had been created for me in church uh, was lacking, lacking in honesty and truth in some ways. Mm. And it felt like all we were trying to do was protect people from the reality that they're going to eventually face. Mm. And instead of, like you said, prepare people or prepare us or help us to grapple with those realities we just try to create like a barrier and a boundary around it. Mm. And so for me, I, I couldn't find answers um, in the church that I grew up in. Um, and it, and it made me have to search for God, uh, a God that was much bigger um, mm. than, than the God I'd experienced so far in my life, I think. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I think that kind of concept of, I guess, hiding away from something as opposed to preparing for it, still carries through 
into like into adulthood and particularly like with the work that you do like you're in the thick of it but for a lot of people for a lot of like churches or people who kind of just like have a have a small finger on the pulse um you know conflict and war and and things like that are kind of just like things that happen somewhere else and it's not it's something that you might pray about quickly and you're like for five minutes before mm. just like sung worship begins mm. but it, it's not really like a, a vivid reality for people is that something that's kind of frustrated you as you've journeyed further into that area yeah totally and i think the i think we've become experts at bypassing reality essentially um mm. and trying to adjust ourselves or try to convince ourselves maybe of a god who isn't in the midst of those things but we're always searching for this god that's outside of those things and i think that's the bit that's frustrated me the most is when i've been in countries of conflict or in my own life or whatever it might be um i've seen that the biggest need is to create space for the sacred for god right in the middle of that chaos um, mm. and i know that like in the peace building work that we've done and uh, and other spaces that we find ourselves in when we create that space and we invite people into it and ask them what's on your heart where are you how are you the sacredness comes in that honesty and that vulnerability and that transparency mm. and i can tell you hands down without a qualm i have felt god the most in those spaces um, mm. right in the middle of the chaos right in the middle of the pain um, because we invite we invite God into that, and mm. I think that's where my frustration lies the most is when we're always looking for a God who, yeah, is beyond that or outside it or in this other space that we're trying to strive for, um, mm. and we forget to 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 invite God into into our realities. I think. Yeah, one hundred percent, and I think that's kind of been the the kind of the tussle for everyone during the pandemic. You're mm. kind of like forced to be like, right. Sunday uh, Sunday church isn't happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what am I doing today? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's that thing of like, you know, when it's like, it's that constant looking for, you know, when we're out of this, when it's better, when it's beyond mm. that, as opposed to the right here, right now kind of thing. Yeah, because I always had a massive problem with this as I got older. But, you know, growing up in church, uh, you're kind of given the Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. We've got our yeah. plans for you, da, 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 da. and it's like, well, hold up, that was like given like while they were in slavery in Babylon, hundred percent, hundred percent, and they had like what another forty years of yeah, slavery. Yeah. So it's like, you lot be quoting this, but I don't know like how soon. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. Happen, you know I mean? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I want to get back to your work in yeah, yeah. Iraq and a, a bit about what you were doing there, and obviously, like you said, such a complicated situation, complicated mm. history. You kind of being plopped there, like you said, in the middle of that. Uh, how did you find that? What were kind of some of the stories that you could tell that you kind of learned a lot from mm. while you were in that context? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many of them. Um, I guess the ones that I, I guess there's kind of two or three that I always always remember the most. And I think one of them was uh, right on our first day when we arrived. Um, we'd gone as a small team of four. Uh, to scope out what could be what a possible response could look like we we walked into this we were in the kurdish region in the north and um we had no idea what we were walking into literally no idea even like the news reports or whatever was very limited in terms of what the actual situation on the ground was and i remember walking into this one church 
Um, it was one of the key churches uh, in Erbil, in the kind of capital of the Kurdish region, and uh, they'd set up uh, like tents for like maybe hundred families, basically in their backyard, in the church's backyard. And um, <clears throat> we wanted to get a sense of like what people's needs were, like what their journey had been, like what, like how can we support them? So we were going kind of tent to tent uh, across families, talking to talking to people. And I remember this one moment sitting with this family who had walked, I think it was something like nine or ten days uh, from wow. where they came from, from Nineveh, um, across to Erbil, literally with whatever they could carry on their backs. Mm. And uh, they had to leave grandparents along the way uh, because they wow. weren't going to make it. And <clears throat> I remember sitting in, in that tent and asking them, you know, what what, what do you need and the response from the dad was, I just want a future for my kids. And I remember that so vividly. And I remember the whole, like all of us just going silent. And, and there were just tears from him, from the family, from us. Of just that, that deep recognition of this was done to them. Mm. And all we want as human beings is to be able to prosper, like you said, but to be able to build life. To build a future for our, for our kids, for them to be educated, for them to find good jobs, and yet the circumstance of life, especially you know in the circumstance this particular family was in, threw that all away for them in an instant, and it had nothing to do with them. Mm. And yet that father's one desire was to figure out a way to now readjust and find a way to build life again. Yeah, I think he always his face and his story always stuck with me through the whole kind of year and a bit that I was living there. And then the other side of it was was our staff. Um, uh, our staff were a mix of Christians, Muslims, Yazidis. Uh, they'd come from Iraq, from Kurdistan. They kind of uh, mix and match from different places and backgrounds. And um, it was incredible because they were all probably the majority of them were in their mid twenties and each one of them at that point had seen three different wars of different wow. kinds. And again, it was just that thing of like, uh, their ability to bounce back, their ability to constantly just want to keep moving forward. Mm. And all that they wanted was the simple things that perhaps some of us take for granted every day of being able to, stay in a house for a few years at a time and not move, to have an education, to go to university, to have a job, to have a family, whatever it might be. And again, like that constant circumstance, throwing that out for them. Um, but what took me back more than anything was their ability to stay in a place of compassion uh, and gentleness and kindness and good humour. And mm. in the midst of all that they'd seen in their lives still manage to keep a smile on their faces and and try as much as they could to enjoy life to the fullest of what they had in front of them. Mm. Um, so those are two, and then, and then just the countless stories of suffering and trauma um, that we heard, and on the flip side of that, the uh, the goodness of humanity and God that helped people to move forward, I think, for me. Yeah. Uh, it was just, yeah, there's so many of those stories. That's incredible. And 
sounds like a lot to process for a whole lifetime. Mm. And I guess, in a sense, these people and these stories that you come across are kind of the the what happens after the conflict. They're kind of like the symptoms of the conflict, in a sense. What's happening before that? What are the big structural problems that are leading to these conflicts in the first place? Yeah. I mean, in, in so many ways, every context has its own kind of um, ecosystem, I guess. But, um, you know, if you look at a place like Iraq or others similar that have gone through that kind of cyclical violence, uh, there's a few things that often lead to it in terms of root causes of why 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 they get to where they are. Uh, one is legacy. Um, and, and in terms of Iraq, you've got the legacy of... Um, not so much necessarily colonialism, although it had kind of aspects of that, unlike other uh, Middle Eastern countries that had very heavy colonial powers um, taking them over. But uh, Iraq, over the last 40 years, has had so many invasions, occupations, um, so many civil and uh, kind of cross-country wars. And it's that sort of very political level... Uh, conflict that happens with arms and guns and uh, uh, and drones and everything else but what happens at the deeper level at the community level is that you end up with these divided communities everywhere you go and they're often divided along religious lines tribal lines sectarian lines um, based on the politics that's happening at that higher level yeah and and the reality is that the role of um of western countries uh prior to kind of the early 1900s in carving out this region based on their foreign policy has resulted in these sectarian lines running through because the democracies or the governance has been built on that foundation um of particular ruling parties being in charge for decades um, or particular tribal leaders having a certain role to play that gets taken away from whoever's in charge. Uh, Iraq's also seen genocide and ethnic cleansing, um, again, in cyclical nature over the last decades. And what that does is it just builds this ingrained division uh, that makes an us and them constantly and that gets handed down generation to generation. Um, and so you grow up knowing that these are my enemies or these are the people I'm supposed to be weary of. This is the group that hates us. This is the group that hurt us mm. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, and it's those divisions that consistently, as people try to gain power or power changes or changes hands, <clears throat> it's those groupings that often continue to fuel um fuel the conflict and division that happens um and you know I, iraq is very unique in that it, it you know it also has uh, a depth of resources uh, natural resources um as well as oil resources and and that's continuously been uh, a source of uh, conflict because it's not shared uh, and there's outside forces who want to get their hands on it as well as it trying to be managed internally. And so, again, it becomes a power play uh, between uh, which can often mask itself in religious conflict. But it's really a power play over um, 
over livelihoods at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a whole lot, a whole heap of things to kind of consider mm. when your plop's right in the middle of that. Yep. <laughs> um, practically, how do you like, do you, how do you do your job? Like, how do you build peace in that, in that context? Particularly yeah. when you're working with different communities, different religious groups, yeah. some of who I'm even sure of, like people that you work with may have even had been enemies to other groups, etc. So how do you balance all that? Yeah, I think I think the most important thing for me personally was knowing that um, it wasn't my lived experience. And so I couldn't come in. There's no way we can come in with ready set solutions um, that we can just say, here you go, here's a bunch of tools, fix your country. It's not going to work. Um, mm. But what we learned over time and what we've learned over time doing this work has been the most important starting point is a to find those people and those voices in the community who a have legitimacy within their community are respected and um, hold a certain leadership space b have a heart for peace building and for a different way of doing things mm-hmm. um and the, and the first step that we've found that's most effective is inviting those people into a room and building relationship Give them space to get to know each other. And what happens is our role becomes a convener role and a facilitator role. It becomes a role of holding space and um, allowing for a a process of of friendship building, uh, of uh, shared visions, shared dreams. Mm. And we found with the groups that we worked with, and we started very small and it's slowly growing, we found I found the moments where I remember probably two Januarys ago we did a conflict transformation um, training in Iraq with our peace builders, and um, there was this one day where we were looking at trauma and cycles of trauma and how to break the cycles of trauma, and uh, we'd sort of sent everyone off into twos to share a story of trauma uh, that had still affected them and that they wanted to kind of work through, etc. And we came back into plenary and I made the mistake of asking the question, uh, how was that process for you? And Chris, we spent the next four hours in that room, people just sharing their story one by one uh, of what they'd been through. And what was incredible was, you know, we had in the room, like I said, Muslims, Christians, Yazidis, Syrians, Iraqis, Kurds, um, who in normal days would be on opposing sides but in this particular space we're able to see that their shared experience of grief and trauma and violence and loss was the same across the board Mm. and that the consequence of it the brokenness of the country the brokenness of their families uh, of their communities was shared across all of those different identities and then once you've built that kind of foundation of commonality and shared space you can then begin to envision together okay well what's possible to make this different Mm. and the approach we've always taken is like i said to be a convener and a facilitator and to allow those dreams and visions to come out from the ground um Mm. And it might be very small programs, it might be bigger programs, it might be trying to change policy, but it also might just be one of the projects that they did, which I loved, was um, in one of the returnee spaces in Nineveh where uh, roads had been completely destroyed and schools destroyed. 
one of the things they wanted to do was to build road signs um, for the kids mm. um, and green spaces. So the project that they envisioned was to build playgrounds for the kids and to put up road signs so that they wouldn't get knocked out over by cars driving through the area. And, you know, that might seem like a really random program, but actually that gave them safety and security and also gave them green space for their kids, which had been completely destroyed. And so when you create that space of trust, mutual trust and relationship, and that takes time, you've got to give it the time. As long as it's taken to break down the country, it will take to rebuild it. Um, And then allow for the visions and the dreams and the imagination to take over from from within that space. Yeah, that's so amazing. I love the idea of just like, switching the lens from survival to how can we thrive together mm-hmm. i think that's so important and i think it's so underrated like it doesn't matter what context you're in what country you're in. i mean i think a lot of people around the world are unhappy about things and i think what happens is normally we tend to then take that out against another group an mm-hmm. identifiable group that we right, can say yeah, oh, you yeah. must be the problem when actually like you said if we just stop and said actually these experiences are all quite similar and then mm-hmm. on top of that this is actually what we could shoot for together. That's yeah. an incredible, incredible, like, power behind that. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like, we all have to live together. And if we can allow ourselves to imagine how that could be possible, uh, I've seen incredible things come out of people um, to make that possible and happen. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, as I kind of just mentioned, like, these like conflict is not like just an issue Mm. in certain countries i think we often kind of have in our head like this kind of like just find it very like archaic global north south divide and like oh it's all crazy over there or it's it's fine and utopia over here (laughs) but we know that's not the case Um, and i guess even an example of that most recently was the uh the storm of the u.s capital Mm, mm, um mm. and that being part of this kind of like general rise of extremist groups becoming more vocal becoming more disruptive um it's it's a similar thing it's a a fragile state of affairs yeah yeah Uh, Yeah. how do we deal with that here in that in this context you know whether it be in the uk us or Mm. or wherever it is what are the steps that we can take not to just be like okay we probably shouldn't let that happen again yeah but actually to be like how do we make sure that not only does it not happen again but everyone who was involved also has found some sense of peace through that in yeah. in this process as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, uh, and bear with me as I kind of explain what I mean by this, but one of the biggest lessons I've had to learn in my life is that I am not exceptional. Um, and I think that goes for nation states as well. And especially big countries, big in the sense of... Um, the kind of political space they take up, like the US and the UK, where uh, we've had this culture of exceptionalism, thinking that we are uh, above the rest or better than the rest in a global sense. And in some ways it's made us forget that we are human and we are made up of the same things that everybody else is made up of. And for me, the, the lesson I've tried to carry in my life over the last few years in this peace building space and particularly in the space of learning about nonviolence is it's really important for us to remember how close to violence we always are. It is very easy for you or me or any of us to snap. Um, because if we're not, if we're not actively 
looking after our well-being or actively healing whatever brokenness or pain we might be carrying it pushes us closer and closer to violence constantly Mm. and so anybody who's been and I think this is one of the things that we fail at quite well uh, in in these particular contexts is we don't often read the signs of what's coming Mm. but if we had our eyes open and our ears open over the last maybe 10 years it wouldn't have been a surprise what happened in January because it's slowly been edging towards that. Yeah. And because we have this constant bypassing, like we were talking about earlier, that we want to think that we are better than we are, or we want to think that we're move we're in a bet we're moving towards a better place than perhaps we are, we yeah. forget that, that take it takes time for change to happen. You know, the whole concept of democracy and the whole concept of um of of freedom of rights and, and etc is a process it's not a final thing like Mm. it's something we're constantly working towards because we are evolving as human beings and we are evolving as societies and so it should never be taken for granted uh, that we've reached a place um, of cohesion or Mm. of uh, of freedom or whatever it might be because it's it it doesn't like i said at the beginning it doesn't go in in an upwards trajectory it goes as we evolve and if evolution often in peace building we always say we say two things one is you take two steps forward 100% you're going to take two back uh, and sometimes it's three forward and and one back and sometimes it's four forward and 10 back like that's just the nature of how we progress um, and we also always say slowly slowly we go far and i think mm. like the way to bring about change and transformation it goes back to that similar model, perhaps, of, of what I was describing in Iraq, of we have to create space uh, to learn to listen to one another. We also have to create space for all the different levels of society to, to have a voice in some form or another. Um, and we have to realise that justice uh, can't just be about restitution or retribution but that it has to be about healing and it has to be about learning to live with one another. Wrongs have to be righted 100%. Um, But in writing them, we can't end up in a place where one group is then put aside from the other. Um, And that goes for all sides, right? And so it has to be restorative in the way that we look for it. Because, like I said, we have to learn to live together. Um, and in an ideal world, you know, it would be uh, justice is like, this is right, this is wrong, you did wrong, and therefore you pay for it. And that's a very simplistic view of how justice works, because even if you imprison someone, at the end of the day, they're going to come back into society at some point. And yeah. if you haven't restored that person, well, then what? You just end up back in that cycle of violence. And so I think we've got to keep our eyes open. I think we need to we need to talk, but we need to talk in a way that grounds us in our human experience and in our individual experience and allows for space for vulnerability and shared storytelling and and then you know that has to cascade upwards as well towards policy and towards the way that we govern but yeah it's it's such a complex evolution (laughs) what we're trying to do here in terms of living together and we've got to honor that and humble ourselves in that in that process wow that that was like a huge like couple minutes of just pure wisdom there. <laughs> out. 
<laughs> thank you for joining me, Marion, today. Like, Thanks, it's Chris. been so good chatting to you. It was um, great, man. I, one last question. I guess yeah. if someone's interested in the work that you do, mm. uh, specifically with Tear Fund or generally, uh, what is a good route for them to kind of get get more info on that? I guess uh, the, probably the best place at the moment is on our Tear Fund Learn website. Um, there's a whole bunch of videos that explain uh, kind of our theory, our theology around peace building. Uh, there's also like reports and evaluations that will tell you a bit more about the actual work that we're doing. There's stuff from our partners on there. So I'd say the Tear Fund Learn website, type in peace building um, and a whole bunch of stuff will, will come up that will hopefully be helpful. great hearing from Marion. what stood out to you listening back chris i really loved the point she made towards the end about justice not just being about restitution or retribution so like i guess uh, punishing and also uh, receiving whatever was lost um but that needs to be restorative as well and i think it's a huge issue with the way we see justice at the moment even when it comes to like something like kind of silly like cancel culture the idea that like really we're just like we're all kind of like this big social media mob with our pitchforks out trying to chase someone who said something like slightly wrong or something and it's like really what are we trying to what are we trying to do here do we actually want to see people like have a second chance and be able to actually understand why what they might have done was wrong um, and be able to actually integrate people back into society like like Mariam said um, so yeah that really stuck out for me and I think it's a point that is difficult to kind of think about even on a grand justice scale but even in just our day-to-day lives I think that's something that we can practice more. Yeah great I think for me the thing that stood out was the importance of not trying to bypass reality but instead creating space for God in the midst of of the chaos and that's this in the last 12 months that's been something we've had to really embrace this doesn't take long flicking through your newsfeed or looking at BBC News website or whatever to see real issues here close to home but also you know in in other countries and much more severe and intense than we're experiencing as well so it's it's been a um, a year of not ignoring that and not switching off from it but trying to engage with it and mm. um, bring it in front of God and and turn to him when we don't really know what's going on and we don't really know how to respond but almost practicing that uh, that that kind of process of bringing something to God even in the in the midst of chaos in the midst of difficult things just not blocking it out and bypassing reality and it's easy to do right because we're in the UK and there's you know, 99% of the rest of the world out there yeah. that we don't engage with regularly. We, it's easy for us to forget the reality of people's situations, but it's really important for us to engage with that. Yeah, and that was like the amazing thing about what Marion was talking about with some of the people that she's met who have like grown up in three different wars. Like that's crazy to me. Like that's mm. something that I can't even conceive. Yeah, um, but the, the ability of people like that to bounce back, not only to bounce back, but still have like a sense of humor, a sense of hope, a sense yeah. of dreaming for the future. It's yeah. really, it's really important. So yeah, completely agree. Great. Thanks, Chris, for joining me today, and thanks to everyone listening in. We'll be back again with another episode on the twelfth of April. If you like what you heard today, make sure you hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram at We Are Tear Fund.